0: So we're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 1. And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honour, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief, And he went round about the villages teaching. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. The Lord Jesus Christ left Capernaum, which appears to have become the city of his residence, and returned to Nazareth, the city of his upbringing, his education, and his trade. It was. It seems from Nazareth that he uh, uh, began um, his his ministry, and then he moved it to Capernaum. His family still lives in Nazareth, so that we are told here in this opening verse that he leaves at what has been called his own city, to go to his own country. The point being, of course, that he was very familiar with both these places and the people there, and they with him. And we're told that he did not go alone because his disciples follow him. And here, I want to make a plea for a moment of self-awareness for each of us. I want to kind of be a little bit personal. Not that I'm going to say anything personal about you. But I want you to think about this for yourselves. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ We're told here that the disciples followed him. But what does it mean to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And perhaps many of us here today, if not all of us, would claim or at least aspire to be a follower of Jesus. But what does that mean? The world, the world is full of People who call themselves followers of Jesus. But let us not deceive ourselves. A follower is a description, it's not a badge. A follower follows. That's what makes him a follower, or her a follower. Where the Master leads, they follow. They learn at the Master's feet. They submit to the Master's will and they endeavour to live their lives as the Master lived his and directs them. Now, that doesn't mean that we wear a long cloak and sandals like Jesus wore and we try to model our lives after him to the best of our ability. that's, that's That's just silly. This isn't about outward appearance, and it isn't even about external practices. Nor does it mean, and this is important because I suspect that a lot of people mistake this point for true Christianity, nor does it mean that we conform our lifestyle to a way of life imposed by a religious group or by the religious norms and expectations of that group. Let me just give you an example here of what I mean. If we grow up, I don't know, in a little town and we have been taken as a child to a church and we attend that church, that becomes our church, we grow up in that church, maybe we get married in that church, maybe our children get baptised in that church, maybe we identify with that church as far as our giving is concerned and as far as uh, our affiliations are concerned, and we live in that church and we are regarded as being a member of that church all our lives. Come the day of our death, come the day of our burial, the minister of that church will say, here is so-and-so, they've lived a good life, they've been a member of this church, and now they're with the Lord. Are they with the Lord? What is it that makes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not by doing all the things that your church expects of you. It's not doing all the things that your minister or your peers require of you. That might make you a good member of the church, but it won't make you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Following is motivated by an internal transformation A conversion. It is is a spiritual state. To be in the kingdom of God is not to be a member of a particular church. Far less the member of a particular nation. To be in the kingdom of God is to be in God's family. Amongst God's people. To have a spiritual life that shows itself in practical ways. It's not trying to be holy, but it's believing, despite our failures, that we are holy because Christ, by his cleansing blood and by his imputed righteousness, has made us so. It's not looking for a fight with people who are not believers in order to impose our moral standards on them, which seems to be what many people think Christianity is today. We'll impose our way of life, our values, our morals on you. But it's wrestling with our own flesh that constantly tries to rob us Of our blessed state in Christ. Following Christ certainly involves cost. And it certainly involves difficulty. But it isn't about impressing anyone. It's about being honest with the Lord. And honest with ourselves. In Mark chapter 7. We'll come to it in a few weeks perhaps. The Lord says... Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whosoever will come after me. Why would we want to come after the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do we want to follow him? It's because we have learned to say with Peter and the other disciples, Where else can we go? In this life, in this world. Where else can we go to find peace with God? To whom else can we go? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life. So these disciples followed the Lord Jesus Christ. They followed him to Nazareth because that's what followers do. They follow their Lord And I suspect that these disciples were rather surprised at the reception that they received in Nazareth. I think maybe they thought that there was going to be something of a party atmosphere. Maybe something of a a hero's welcome. Here was a local man made good. They would be neighbourly and friendly to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his disciples. But I think rather that the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching these disciples a lesson and teaching us as well. He was teaching them the lesson that no matter where they went, being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be tough, it was going to be demanding, and it was going to be lonely. When we take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't go back. We don't go back. But oh, what a blessing awaits the followers of Christ. Recently, someone wrote to me asking about a verse which I think has something to say on this subject. The verse was, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17. Um, and it says this: For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. To be a follower of Christ will bring affliction, but it's momentary and it's light and it worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. To be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ requires that we labour, that we serve, that we fight, that we follow. But that affliction that we endure is light and short and passing and positive, constructive, because it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So may the Lord enable us to follow the Master, to follow Jesus Christ as his true followers by giving us grace now and that promised glory hereafter. I've got three observations that I wish to make and leave with you today from these six verses that we've read together here from Mark chapter 6. And I hope that they will educate and encourage us in the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ had gone to Nazareth. There he entered the synagogue. Both of these things were purposeful. He went... From one place to the other. And when he arrived there, he entered the synagogue and we're told he began to teach. You see, the Lord is showing us and showing his disciples that he was willing to bring the gospel to the men and women of Nazareth. He was willing to bring the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom to these men and women also. It was a purposeful act to preach amongst them. Now, being the Lord Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, being omniscient, he knew what the reaction of these people would be. He knew that they would reject him. He knew that they would be offended by him. And from this we learn, as the disciples learned, they by example, we by reading this, that Jesus, when he gave them this example, was teaching them that the hearts of men and women are implacably opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel of grace. Even, even where ordinarily one might expect there to be an openness and a welcome to Christ and to his message. Now, realize what I'm saying here. The Lord took these disciples all the way to Nazareth, all the way to his hometown, all the way to where his family was, all the way to where his neighbors were in order to show them that the place where they might most expect the Lord to get a positive welcome ended up being a place where he was almost entirely rejected. The Lord was willing to do good to and for his neighbours, but they would have none of it. And there... He went in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, so here was a religious gathering, people who were there for a religious reason, among his family and among his erstwhile friends, the greatest preacher, the greatest miracle worker of all time, stood up. And spoke the truth to men's hearts. Set before them the way of life. And these people threw it back in his face. Let us never expect the message of sovereign grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ to be widely welcomed by proud self-righteous men and women. It wasn't so for the Lord Jesus Christ, in circumstances we might imagine to be the most conducive to receiving his message. It would not be so for the disciples when they were commissioned to take the gospel out to the ends of the earth, starting at Jerusalem and Judea, even to all nations. And it shall not be for the church in any generation. And that's not to say that there won't be plenty of religion. Here these people were in their synagogue with their religious formalities, with their religious books, with their readings and their patterns, and ostensibly with their divine worship. But they rejected Jesus Christ, they rejected God Himself. The Apostle Paul tells us in First Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So that is point one that I have to leave with you today: that spiritual life if it is to be had, if it is to be possessed, requires a divine work of grace. The next thing we read is that these people of Nazareth were offended at him. Offended at the Lord Jesus Christ. The most inoffensive, gentle good and loving man who ever walked upon this earth and they were offended at him. Not because he didn't teach them, but because he taught them so well. Not because they didn't know him, but because they knew too much. And not because he couldn't help them, but because they were too proud to accept his help. Such is the contrariness in the words of these people. It becomes clear that it was simply malice and evil hearts that caused them to speak as they did. They admitted that Christ's words were wonderful. They admitted that his wisdom was inexplicable. Where does he have these things from? Who taught him these things? These words are wonderful words. This wisdom is is unexplainable. His works are mighty. But rather than these qualities which they admitted which they saw, rather than them softening their attitude towards Christ and his gospel, they offended them. And we should learn something from that. You cannot impress a sinner into heaven. You can't do it. Churches, they try to be entertainers. Maybe they, they, they talk about miracles and, and power, and they try to make their services as, as dramatic and as, as exciting as they possibly can. Or they bring in psychology and life skills in order to make them more meaningful to people living in the, in the modern world with the practicalities that they uh, encounter. And let them do all of those things. Let them get on with it. The point is this, that grace itself was the stumbling block. Mercy was the obstacle to these people. They accepted and acknowledged all the wonderful things that Jesus was able to do. But they didn't want him. They wanted a religion of merit. They wanted a religion of works. And self-righteousness. And it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. If we speak about blood that cleanses. Right? Blood that cleanses. Not blood that makes cleansing possible. There's a difference. Not that makes forgiveness possible if you want it but that actually cleanses. If we speak of the gift of faith, not something that you earn, not something that you labour for, but something that is given as a free gift of God. If we speak about righteousness imputed without works, and speak about God's choice of who he will give his salvation to, we will discover that the natural men and women of this world will set up any reason to be offended at the preacher, at the message, and ultimately at the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself. They were offended. Why? Because the message of sovereign grace humbles men and women. And it goes against every desire of the flesh and every principle dear to sinful human nature. The Lord Jesus Christ brought the gospel to Nazareth and the people of Nazareth were offended. And that's our point too. The Lord Jesus Christ and Sovereign Grace offends natural men and women. Now, um, I've got a little aside for us here uh, now because I wanted to pick up just on a little word that was used by these people who were offended at the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and read a little piece to you that I uh, read when I was doing my preparation um, The the, the people of Nazareth called the Lord Jesus Christ this carpenter. And they meant it as an insult. They meant the fact that they were saying to him, uh, as it were, he's setting himself up here as a a, as a teacher. He's setting himself up here as a, a, a leader. But we know who he is. He's the carpenter. This carpenter. It was intended as an insult to the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Robert Hawker says with respect to that insult. He discovers a a beautiful thought here concerning this allegation that was made against the Lord. Here's what Hawker has to say. What became in the view of the enemies of Christ A matter for reproach is, to the friends and followers of Christ, a subject of heartfelt joy. Is not this the carpenter, they say? Yes, say I, and blessed be my Lord for his grace and condescension in being so. For in Christ becoming a curse for his redeemed, it behoved him to undergo that curse in all its branches. The tenor of the curse pronounced at the fall ran in those words, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, meaning toil and labour. So, let me paraphrase. You would have to work in order to eat. You would have to sweat in order to make your way through life. And Hawker goes on to say, Had not Jesus thus toiled and laboured for his bread... This part of the curse could not have lighted upon him. Neither could he then have been said to have borne it. But by laboring with his hands for his daily bread as a carpenter, he literally fulfilled that part of the curse. And though he might have fed himself as he fed others by working a miracle, yet then he could not have come up in this point to the object intended. So far, therefore, is Christ's labour in the employment of a carpenter from lessening the authority of his mission, that without it he would not have answered the character of our Redeemer in redeeming us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. That's what Mr. Hawker has to say. So that even the Lord's trade as a carpenter, which these people ridiculed, was purposefully designed to enable him to fulfill all the covenant obligations for his church and for his people. Isn't that beautiful? I think so. Here's my third and last point. The Bible tells us many are called, but few are chosen. And that's the wonder of electing grace. Let me just mention here, in case anybody is wondering, when we read about the Lord's brothers and sisters, Remember that that's talking about his near family, including cousins and half-cousins and and those of the wider family group. That that wider family is all often in the Bible called brothers and, and sisters. And also, let us remember this, that the Lord's power was not in any way constrained By the fact that these people didn't believe in him. The Lord's power as the omnipotent God to do mighty works was never diminished. It was not. Rather what Christ is is telling us here or doing here is that he would not do a mighty work because of their unbelief, and because of their sin. As God, nothing there was nothing that Christ could not do, but there was much as God that he would not do. What he did do was wonderful enough. He laid hands On a few sick folk, and he healed them. And that is a beautiful picture of particular mercy and sovereign grace. The very mercy that endures that we were reading about in our opening psalm. And that's a lesson for the disciples, and it's a lesson for us. Despite the general unbelief of these people, The Lord still sought out those few sick folk that he had chosen to bless and he delivered them from the bondage of their sickness and their need. Let me ask you a question. Let me personalize this. Are you sick? Are you sick? The elect of God, the elect of God are poor, sick sinful, needy folk. And Jesus has come to save them. He comes in his gospel to their place, to their condition, in order to deliver them from their need. Here are the poorest, the most useless, the most easily ignored group of people in that whole community, They were a few sick folk, and the Lord finds them, and the Lord lays his hand upon them, and the Lord heals them. And that's what the disciples learned from this episode. And that's what the apostles experienced when they went out into all the world to preach the gospel. And that's what we are doing today, right here and right now, in this little exercise that we are embarked upon. We are preaching the gospel indiscriminately. We are preaching to everyone, to anyone who will listen, all who will hear. And yet we marvel, marvel that so many are offended at the message that we bring and the gospel of grace that we preach. We think that free grace is good news, just what we need. Why won't you hear us? We marvel at the unbelief around about us, at the hardness of sinful hearts, at the offence of the cross. But praise God, through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit still finds a few sick folk to bless. A few sick folk to save. A few sick folk to bring into the kingdom of God and reveal them as Christ's true family. The Lord Jesus Christ left off preaching in Nazareth and he went around the local villages preaching and teaching. Mark this, we never hear of him returning to Nazareth again. But those who must be saved were not abandoned. Those appointed to salvation are gathered in, the few sick folk that must be healed. Were touched by the Lord Jesus Christ. The elect will always be few in any place at any particular time. The elect confess themselves sick with the disease of sin. We struggle, we live with this sin. And we dare not die with it. We're not special in the eyes of the world. We're not special in our own eyes. Except for what Jesus has done for us. We are the few sick folk that he came to save. We are the few sick folk for whom he shed his blood. And we are the few sick folk who are regenerated by God the Holy Spirit and brought to the experience of the love of God in the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world is offended by the Lord Jesus Christ and it despises the few sick folk, but we long for the touch of the physician's hand. All who seek the healing touch shall discover the Lord Jesus Christ to be all we need and all we desire. May he prove to be so to our soul's good today. Amen.